0: I had to get out of the notion of what being a man consists of as a from a social construct and these are things these were things that were taught to me from a very 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 young age Um, especially growing up in the south as a black man and um, always taught to be a provider to your family and Um, you never really show any emotion because you don't want to show any type of weakness so it's like you know don't cry Um, you never want to show any any type of emotion the only emotion a black man is able to display is anger and and for me i also had to learn i had to really learn what does bipolar mean what what are the real symptoms of it what does it look like for me as a black man not just what the book tells me but what does it look like for me um but because these these things weren't explained to me very well when I was in when I was in the hospital or even when I came out of the hospital.
1: Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 19. Hey guys, welcome back to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. Thanks for joining me for yet another episode. Today, we're diving into a topic that I am extremely passionate about, and that is the intersection of culture and mental health. I think that this is extremely important and something I've been trying to integrate into more of my conversations in my own work as our culture greatly shapes, you know, who we are and our experiences and how we are translating the world in our relationships cultural competence is a pretty big deal when it comes to mental health when you think about it because how a person was brought up in this world the customs beliefs and attitudes that surround that culture is greatly going to shape how they're translating life's events how they're translating their relationships and approaching the world and whatnot and not only that but what methods of treatment and coping and even styles of communication are going to be most effective with you and we're really considering the whole person, right? What works best for the whole person considering all of these dynamics? And the truth is that in the field of psychology, a lot of the research is really done on people of European descent, right? There's not a whole lot of cultural inclusion. And that's something that I believe the field is trying to work on when it comes to diversity. Uh, We have what we would call weird samples. So Western industrialized, educated rich and democratic usually tends to be the focus of these studies but what might work for one culture might not work so well for the other so it's important to think about these things and that's part of a larger conversation but we can even think about this when it comes to ourselves right and all the dynamics that culture has played and, uh, you know, I'm really excited because I have a really great guest today, a friend of mine, Rashawn Miller, who is one of many people who are doing the work of trying to bridge, right, culture and mental health. And I appreciate not only the work that he's doing, but his story, his testimony, which we're going to hear shortly. He's kind of been on both ends of the table where he has, you know, lived with a diagnosis in managing that. And he's also a licensed therapist and gets to help see others through their journey and as a black man very candidly sharing what those social constructs look like for him and growing past them toward his own healing and self-realization. Right? Uh, Because there's stigma around being a man when it comes to mental health, and there's stigma around being black when it comes to mental health. You put those two together and you have these subcultures that are uh, kind of intersecting, right? So a lot of times men can't show emotion, right? It's seen as weak. And when you don't have space for that, it translates as anger, which is a secondary emotion. But when you don't have space for depression, anxiety, sadness, and whatnot, that seems more acceptable because it's very dominant. It's very masculine and we need to understand that, right? And in the black community, there are its own set of beliefs around help and therapy and kind of the Superman, Superwoman complex and what it means to be strong. Uh, So we're talking about all of that today and I really appreciate it. I think that this conversation is generally important, whether you are a black man or not, whether this is your experience or not, in just gaining understanding as we are moving toward and leaning into understanding and loving our neighbors better, who might be going through some of these similar dynamics. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Rashawn Miller on identity and black male mental health. Right, guys welcome back to the faith and mental wellness podcast i'm so excited for today's guest i have rashawn miller with me how are you doing today rashawn
0: i'm well Brittany. thank you for having me
1: i'm so glad we finally get to have this conversation um took a- <laughs> i feel like it took a long time but we're doing it and i can't wait to share all of the work that you're doing with everyone because you're you're everywhere man like You're everywhere. And it's so cool (laughs) to see.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the work doesn't stop. And it's so it's such a great need. Um, That's why I feel like especially when I'm walking in my purpose, I don't get tired. So I I keep it going.
1: I told I feel that completely. It's that flow, right? Right. And It's just like, okay, it's a lot of work, you know, especially in this mental health field and world. it's, It's it can be heavy work, but it's so worth it. And you just feel so filled, even right. when it can be so exhausting. Agreed. And you're in such a unique position. And I want to talk more about that. But before I get there, tell me about your artwork that you were previously getting into. I hear you used to <laughs> dream about designing sneakers. Like what is what is that about?
0: Oh, man, as a, as a child, I love coloring. I love um, just drawing and I could literally draw things just from my imagination, but then also wow. I could look at things and draw it, whether that be people or any, uh, inan- inanimate object. And that's something that I wanted to do. I, I love sneakers growing up and I wanted to always design my own sneaker. Um, and, but that was something that, uh, as a child, you know, it's, it's something that you don't see as profitable. Well, parent, my parents didn't see it as profitable, but right. they, needed, they wanted to say that, oh, well, you need to go into a field where you can uh, make money. And especially since I was good in school, as far as making good grades, they said, don't waste your intelligence on that. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't blame my parents for anything, but you know, it's, it's just that they didn't know. And so as I started to... Understand that aspect of it and as far as what grades meant and how I needed to do well in school And then I started playing sports, too I started just put down my sketch pad and Mm -hmm. and I really uh, Didn't uh, do much with it any uh, later, but it actually comes back as in my adult life That's why I do the adult coloring nights. So and getting back into those um, Those habits of coloring and teaching other people that they shouldn't uh, let those things go
1: right I was just gonna say. Now I'm making the connection between the coloring book events that yeah. you have, which is very <laughs> yeah. distressing. Those I used to even get the um, the apps for like the coloring worksheets, just distressing that anxiety. Right. I love right. that. So, you know, speaking of. You stress and your work there. Tell us about yourself for those who aren't aware of the work that you're doing and everything, you know, and your background leading up to the work that you're currently doing in the community, including You Stress. Like, tell us all about that.
0: <laughs> well, we're going we're to make it short. But yeah. so, um, <laughs> Uh, Rashawn Miller. I'm a founding executive director of Eustress Inc., which is a nonprofit to raise mental health awareness in Black and Brown communities. Uh, we do this through various activities and uh, just initiatives to make mental health fun, and but then also so people can be informed. And you don't, I don't use the typical. Um, The typical approach to addressing these issues, Um, really, I got into the field about 13 years ago, Um, actually worked as a as a tech at a at a group home. So just understanding how those individuals living in the group home, how they were treated, but then also the just the different needs that they needed to be met. Um, but originally from Lewiston, Woodville, North Carolina, which is in Bertie County of North Carolina, a lot of times I reference the county because my town is so small Mm -hmm. that people don't, people don't know where it is. Um, like we legit have one stoplight. Uh, my granddad still owns a farm down there. He's, he still farms to this day. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of trees and there's nothing really there. Uh, I compare it to, I, I let people know how small it is based off the fact that we don't even have a Walmart in our county. Because
1: mm, you're busy <laughs> growing your own food.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. But, oh, um, so grew up in a small town um, as an only child, um, but uh, also, like I said, I, I played three sports growing up, basketball, football, and track, um, and I was pretty good at sports, but then also graduated near the top. For my class from high school. Um, so that also played into my ego and then my inflated uh, self <laughs> because of the fact that coming from a small town, you were considered a man in both uh, school and on the field or the track or the court. And as I transitioned to college, that was a, a, a blow for me because when I went to college, I went to a large school. I went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill which is, for one, a predominantly white institution. And I came from a predominantly black community. And um, but then also you have about it's it's over 25,000 students there. Mm. And so that was a struggle for me. I I tell people my very first class at uh, Carolina was a chemistry class. And that chemistry class had 300 students in there. And probably out of those 300 students, you had about, three or four black people in the, in the class. Yeah. Um, it's a culture <laughs> and, shock. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So it was, a, it was a, it was a big culture shock for one, but then also I ended up walking on to the football team and the track team there. So I'm playing D one sports and I'm trying to manage all uh, this course load and also then the cultural aspect of being in cultural shock. And it was just a lot to handle. And during my sophomore year, I caught a helmet to the knee and blew out my knee and I had to have surgery. Mm. And so sports was was done with now. Um, and I lost a sense of identity. Yeah. Because uh, also during my freshman year, um, I ended up on academic probation because I wasn't doing too well in school. So now you take away sports from me, which uh, I've been doing all my life, but then also I was a student all of my life until I got to college and so now I'm I'm confused (laughs) as who I am and what what what's what's to come and then also having to live up to the expectations of coming from a small community and everybody's rooting for you everyone wants you to succeed and they want you to come back to the hood and you know put the hood on and like all of those things I'm like I'm completely failing in all of these things And so that also led into just uh, a depression state. Um, But I went through a period where I didn't sleep for about two weeks. And uh, I lost about 25 pounds over a matter of six weeks. And during that time period, I also started to hear voices. Um, But it was something that I wouldn't tell anyone because I, for one, didn't know what it actually meant. But then I also understood that a lot of times when we think about people hearing voices, the first thing we do is call them crazy. And that's something that I didn't want individuals to call me was crazy. So I try to keep it to myself. But like I said, I'm an I'm a only child. And so my uh, mom, she actually picked up on just the difference in tone in my voice when I mm. talked to her on the phone.
1: Mama knows. We yeah. know. We know. Right. right. We know. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: so um, she noticed that's that difference and she... Reached out to my cousin who went to a, a neighboring college and told my cousin to come check in on me.
2: Wow! And when my
0: cousin when my cousin came to check in on me, all she could do was cry, because I wasn't the Sean that she, she that she grew up with. So this cousin, she's five months older than me, so we grew up like brother and sister. So uh, she called my mom. My mom said, "Get him out of that room. Take him to your apartment." And two hours later, my family shows up. And my, my family, there asking me, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm slight. Like, Nothing. I'm good. You know, I, I won't tell them anything that's going on uh, because I'm scared of what they're going to do. And this what my family responded by saying, well, if you don't want to talk to us, we're going to take you somewhere where they can give you give you some help. And that was the local uh, psychiatric ward at the hospital. And they literally had to drag me to the hospital. And when they drug me to the hospital, I fought the entire way there. And when I got to the hospital, I ended up punching a nurse. So they had to put me in restraints. And um, that was probably one of the lowest points of my life, just being in a psychiatric ward in restraints. And then uh, my family sitting there. Crying because they don't know what to do and how to do it and then they they see how I was being treated and you know Not that it was bad because I punched someone but you know, they didn't they're not used to seeing me in that light right and so Being in a in a in a padded room with in restraints was something that was tough tough to deal with especially from I Was on a high coming out of high school and then now a little over a year later now I'm in the psychiatric ward um Ended up telling them my symptoms after a long period of not trying to tell them what was going on <laughs> and um, received a diagnosis of bipolar one disorder with psychotic features. And uh, when they took, when they allowed me to leave the hospital, they told me I didn't need to go back to school. They said that. Um, School was a stressor for me and I needed to actually get on this regimen when it comes down to medication and therapy before and learn how to manage my 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 behaviors and my my symptoms before I was able to go back to school. So that happened. Luckily for me, I ended up finding a therapist, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, actually, who was a black male. um, That was a friend of my uncle's. And Mm -hmm. so when I was referred to him, I. I let it all out because I felt comfortable even talking to him just just from the simple fact. When I first went to his office, uh, I walked in and he was like, yo, what's up, Sean? And and dap me up. Mm. And yeah, and it was I was like, because also he had on it was middle of the summer uh, and he had on a T-shirt and some basketball shorts that's from Jordan's. And I looked at him with a side eye. I was like, bro, are, you, serious? are you, you sure you're a, you're a psychologist? <laughs> <laughs> because we see, these, we see these perceptions of what therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists look like on right. TV. But, you know, so I'm, I'm giving him the side eye, but I'm also still comfortable to talk to him. Right. And, and so I ended up, you know, sharing everything. We ended up getting the help that I need. He also referred me to a psychiatrist that he trusted. And so they worked they work hand in hand to get me the help that I needed. And then I got better. When I got better, I said I wanted to go back to school, went back to school. But before I went back to school, I was like, when I got better, I said, I'm cured. I don't need this no more. I don't need to talk to you no more. I don't need no meds anymore. None of that. I'm going to go back to school. Ended up going back to school um, and symptoms came back. And when the symptoms came back, instead of me going back to therapy and getting back on medication, I started to self-medicate with alcohol. And I was drinking a fifth of tequila every other day. And I did that for over three years. Mm. And during that time period, I attempted suicide three times. Uh, The first two times I attempted to overdose on pills. And then the last time I put a gun in my head and pulled the trigger and it jammed on me.
2: Mm.
0: And now that was my very lowest point of my life because I went through these time periods um, where I wanted some type of control because the voices in my head were so loud and I just felt like I was losing it. And I wanted some type of control and I wanted the pain to stop. But I failed at even doing that. And that was my wake up call. Was like, Sean, you need to go get some help. You need mm. to get back. But what, what helped you get better in the first place. So I reached back out to my therapist and got back on medication, started back therapy, and I got better this time. Um, but when I got better this time, I just started to really look at the world completely different just because. I was seven, it was seven, it was seven years from my very first diagnosis until that, until that, um, actual, um, until that actual, um, the, the, last attempt at suicide. Yeah. And when I went and during that time period, I didn't tell anybody what was going on. So since I didn't tell anyone what was going on, I wanted other people to know that they weren't alone but as as i started to look at my family and my friends i started noticing symptoms in them as well right. and yeah so like i had a i had a roommate and you know he would he would smoke like all day every day so we had a dysfunctional household where i was drinking all day and he was smoking all day mhm mhm <laughs> and so and he never knew what was going on with me. And then just one day I asked him, I was like, bro, why why are you smoking so much? He was like, Nah, I just needed to get through my day, you know, just to be able to focus in all of these things. Ooh, I was like, I've
1: heard that so much. I've heard yeah. that so many times in my community. <laughs> right. In our community. Right. Right. That comes up a lot. There's a lot of that self-medicating with substances. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's like it I don't know why, but it it's it's like it kind of appropriated as this l- cultural lifestyle, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's not like it's a symptom of either you know mental a mental health condition or just lack of coping skills, and it's just it's it's pretty rampant. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I saw that a right.
0: lot. It is, and and then on top of that, it's 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 considered a lifestyle, but then it's also promoted. And exactly. It's, it's, yeah. And I was like, it's sensationalized. And like, oh, if I can drink X amount of alcohol before passing out or I get drunk every single day and it like, no, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I can sm- smoke this amount of you know, weed. I'm like, why though? <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, so I had a conversation with him and to get him to open up to me, I had to open up to him. Yeah. And I really I gave him a rundown of every single thing that was going on with me. And his very first thing was like, bro, well, why didn't you tell me? And I had to look at him and say, I don't, I was scared to tell you for one. But then for two, if I would have told you, what would have been your response?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I was like, what would have been your response if I would have told came up and told you, bro, I hear three distinct voices. And I done attempted to kill myself three times and I don't know what to do. Like, and so I was scared of his response. So we had that conversation and he opened up to me and he was like, well, bruh, I've been dealing with some of the same things. And me actually being able to go through those things and actually get the help that I needed, I was able to help him. And from there, that's when I made a decision. I was like, well, I want to go back to school because I understand that stories are powerful. Yeah. But then also I wanted to know... How can I really effectively help individuals and really learn about these different diagnoses, especially when it comes down to our community? So I went to school, got my master's in clinical mental health counseling, and now pursue, and became a, a licensed professional counselor, but now pursuing my Ph.D. in international psychology as well. And uh, I started a nonprofit, Eustress, to talk about these issues in our community. But then also I have a private practice as well. And I, like I said, I wanted Eustress to not just be stuffy and me just spitting out facts and just and me just sharing my story, but I wanted, these, I wanted individuals to learn different techniques that they can implement into their daily lifestyles that can help them manage their stressors. And uh, that's when I started the Let's Talk About a Mental Health Awareness Walk. So I do three of those a year. One in Charlotte, which is where I live. I do one in Chapel Hill, where I went to um, undergrad. And I do one in Bertie County, my hometown. And uh, not only not only do we walk, but then also I have just different um, practitioners that may can assist with helping you manage your stress, whether that be a nutritionist or a physical therapist or a personal trainer, all of it because all of these things play into your mental health. So that's why I want everyone to notice that. You you don't have to just go to therapy. You don't have to just ha- take medication. You have to be healthy all the way around to make sure that you can manage your stressors. And then also started introducing the adult coloring nights. So I do those. Um, currently, just do them on the East Coast, but maybe we can get out there one day and yeah, do one come one to you. LA. <laughs> I want to come I want to color too. So, right, we can make, we can make this happen. Um, but then also doing uh just other different other types of events where I do yeah. a mental health awareness gala as well, um, in May, where I give a I give a awards to a clinician of the year, a community organization of the year, and a peer award of the year. But then also last year I started the Why You Stressing uh, Scholarship Fund, where I give away a scholarship to a young black male who is pursuing his degree in a Counseling profession whether that be psychology mental health counseling or social work because I also understand that Sometimes trying to go to school is is tough so I want to do whatever I can to make sure that there are more black men in this field because We're like unicorns out here when it comes down to being able to uh, Find black male therapists, but there are so many black men out here that need that help
1: so many and it's under it's an underserved you know, population, uh, oh, yeah. community is underserved. Um, so, you know, you, you're just doing a little bit, just just a little. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah just a little bit. <laughs> Man, yeah, you know, I am so.
1: Yeah, I'm so impressed. You know, not that my impression matters all that much, but like, <laughs> this is awesome, oh, I and I it. I love your holistic approach. Um, thank you for sharing your story and your journey. That is amazing and i think it intersects with so many people's journeys you know uh specifically the the black male community because i just what? i just know of more than a handful of my own that um that are relatable that are very similar to your story and so you know just hearing just hearing like okay you know there's someone who's been through what i've been through and is talking about it mm-hmm. so powerful And I, I really loved the support of your family. I mean, how quick they were to respond. I think that that was everything that they were so attentive to you enough to say, my son is not like behaving like the son that I know what's going on. And they picked up on those signs. I mean, that's awesome. You have it an is, awesome family. Is. I
0: was I was I was very privileged to have them in my life at the time and then like you said being able to pick up on that and um knowing where to go.
1: Exactly. They they took you to get appropriate help and even though you were kicking and screaming which is funny because a lot of the people that I talk to or even some that I've had on this show about going to the psychiatric ward it seems to mostly be against their will.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You no know. Question. And so, you know, a lot of people will ask, well, you know, what do I do if the person resists if they don't want to go? Would you say that, you know, you know, get the help anyway, drive them there anyway, call the and this is if some people are are um, there's a kind of a debate between between whether to call the police or not or how that Mm -hmm. could be Mm re-traumatizing. What what insight would you have on on that as far as getting someone help who's resisting?
0: Um, when it, especially, well, for, for one is, is considering, are they a danger to themselves or anyone else? So understanding, are they in a crisis? And a lot of times I know crisis is subjective, but the very first thing we want to understand are, would they hurt themselves or someone else? And do they have the means to do so? Um, so that's the very first thing Mm -hmm. we want to consider. And if they do, and they are like, um, I would definitely call the police but then also inform the police of, of, of your concerns about mental health challenges so that they don't use any type of extreme force when it comes down to addressing that individual. Right. I know here, here in Charlotte, they do a CIT training where they train uh, uh, first responders how to address individuals that may be dealing with mental health challenges, and I help also help with that training, and it's very informative for them um, but then also it, it, it allows them to take a different approach whenever they're um, called to these types of, of um, situations. Yeah. So being, being very uh, candid with the operator on the phone as why you are calling the individual and not just, oh, well this person has access to a gun and they're out right there waving it. Um, also give them the backstory as far as what you think is uh, contributing to them being uh, out there and not just being a, a quote unquote criminal. Um, right. Understanding that the individual may be dealing with some other issues. Uh, but then, oh, if they're not in that particular crisis, I would say, you know, p- position it to them as if that you're concerned about their health and um, you will be there every step of the way with them. But then, not saying that you want to have them quote unquote committed. But then you want to uh, go with them to get the help that they actually need, because a lot of times people don't want to go to the psychiatric ward or or to the hospital or or even to see a therapist, period, because they're scared of what it's going to be like because they don't know what it's like. But then also they don't want to do it alone. And they don't want to be left alone because of the fact that they're now con- they're considered an outcast or they're considered crazy or any of those things. And then and then scared that the person that actually took takes them or calls them is gonna go back and tell someone else. <laughs> all of and, that. <laughs> right. So all of those things play a factor. So you have to build that trust with the individual, but then also let them know that you know, you're there for them and that you're not going to hurt them in any type of way. And if they want to keep this a secret, they can keep it a secret uh, until they're ready to actually really open up about other things with other people.
1: I love that. And and I so appreciate you mentioning the need for telling them that you will be there every step of the way, because Mm -hmm. it's I would think that fear of the unknown and the kind of going in alone that really amplifies, you know, the uh, the resistance of going. Uh, And I yeah, and I love also um, that you were able to connect with a psychologist who spoke your language from Mm -hmm. dapping you up. To being like, Abra hey, I feel you.
0: Right. there. Like that's
1: <laughs> right. that. I mean, just there's so much power in language, and mm-hmm. and even even that even that body language where um it's like I can right. see myself in this person, and that kind of creates a safety, and it mm-hmm. it it automatically brings down certain barriers. So right. when I tell people, like obviously a person of color isn't the only person that can help another person of Of color there are these nuances that make it uh potentially more effective for that Mm -hmm. person's healing um and i think that it's it's okay to to address that realistically Um, and so we know there's still a good amount of stigma around the idea of having a mental diagnosis or getting help, which I love that you're combating. And even further, there's stigma within subcultures, you know, such as the black community Then it becomes additionally challenging as a man where there are social constructs of how a man is supposed to be, especially a black man, you know, can you tell us about those challenges and what's helped you move past those stereotypes? Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're gonna get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing, but I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient You know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less and you can securely message your counselor anytime any day you know day or night and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the signup process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation.
0: Whew, boy. I know. Hilarious. I know. That's like a whole
1: other podcast. I know.
0: <laughs> oh, man. So one thing is um, understanding that social constructs are just those. There right. are social constructs. And and we may not always adhere to all of them. Um, so for me, I had to get out of the notion of what being a man is. Consist of as a from a social construct, and mm-hmm. these are things, these were things that were taught to me from a very, very, very young age. Um, especially growing up in the south as a black man, and yeah. um, always taught to be a provider to your family. And um, you never really show any emotion because you don't want to show any type of weakness, don't be a punk, all right? Yeah, man, I grew no. up
1: with all boys with six boys, so oh, I hear you all the way right now.
0: Yeah. So it's like, you know, don't cry. Uh, You never want to show any any type of emotion. The only emotion a black man is able to display is anger. Anger. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. Rashawn, I know when, not that I know that I know, but like most of the time when black men in my family or my community are in this state of like hostility and anger and pent up frustration, some of them are like depressed. You know what I mean but we don't have space they don't have the space to be sad so it comes out as anger and then it's seen as oh they're angry or it's criminalized or it's a behavioral Mm -hmm. issue and Mm -hmm. it's like no there's not a space for mental health (laughs) like you know so this is how it comes out and that's diffusing that is huge
0: and it's, and we're not given. I, I realized that I was never given the words to communicate how I feel.
1: That part too.
0: i was never taught what it what it, what it is what it is feel what's the feeling of being anxious. Now there's a difference between being anxious and you know anxiety. And of course we we never talked about anxiety anyway. Period. But yeah, what
1: do you then, ang- what are you worried for? You have you have food, you have a right. roof over your head. Why why are you worried?
0: right you, you or, you're are oh, you are a child you're a child you ain't got nothing I'm to worry worried. about you ain't got no bills and none of that stuff like I'm I got worried all the
1: too I'm worried right. too you know <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: yeah so so all of those things we're 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 silenced at a very young age yeah, and when you're silenced that's when you 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 pick up on those habits and you just keep it suppressed and so that's something that I had to come back. Um, within myself, but then also I had to start doing research on myself to mm. learn. who I am That's as a huge. person. Um, but then, and, and as, and when it comes down to learning who you are, this can be very tough because we're we're always looking for validation or we're always told by other people what you should be. Cause the, it's think about it. Even when I go back to my childhood, when I said I used to like to draw and I wanted, and I had a passion for designing shoes or just being an artist, I was told that no, that's not good enough. You need to do this, and so I completely laid that down. Yeah. So, so as you as you go through life and and you block out what people are saying that you should do and shouldn't and shouldn't do, and right. really try to learn. What gives you joy or what things make you upset? And, you know, once you really start to learn those things, things you start to look at the world completely different.
1: Right. Right.
0: And for me, I also had to learn. I had to really learn what does bipolar mean? What what are the real symptoms of it? What does it look like for me as a black man? Not just what the book tells me, but what does it look like for me? Um, But because these these things weren't explained to me very well when I was in when I was in the hospital or even when I came out of the hospital.
1: I think a lot of people still don't fully understand what what bipolar disorder looks like.
0: Right. Because because we we see these uh, grandiose um, personifications on movies and TV shows that. May not give an adequate depiction of what it actually means, or what it what it. Uh, I mean, but even and, and we and we use the terms very loosely. As yeah, well.
1: exactly. Like mood swings, they're just mood right. swings.
0: Right. Or or even when you when someone is sad, and it, it may be they just sad for a couple of days. I mean, they may be sad for a couple of hours. You say, oh, he's just going through a, a depression phase, and he only been sad for two for for two hours. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> like we we don't know what these things actually mean or the severity of lo- using these words very loosely.
1: And I think that when you've when it's your lived reality, you just assume that's just your life. You know what right. I mean? Like you're like, "Oh, right. this is just how I think. This is just, you know, what happens" instead of mm-hmm. processing like maybe this is ex- more extreme than it should be.
0: Agree. Agree. I completely agree.
1: Yeah. So, so what was the turning point from, you know, the shame and the ego to embracing and empowering? Was it just mostly like seeing someone like you empowered and doing the work in the field and seeing and going, oh, I could, I could do this. You
0: know, I can
1: overcome this. I could do this.
0: For me, it it actually started off with my blog. So I I Ah. used to, yeah, so I, I used, I was starting my blog. But when I did my blog, I didn't put my name on it. And I was, you know, I was a ghostwriter. And when I would put it out and share it, um, I would get, you know, just different responses from it. And people were saying, oh, I've been doing these things. I've been dealing with some of the same things. Or thank you for sharing and, you know, just your tips as far as you being able to manage your own stuff. And the more I seen that, and especially because a lot of it came from people that knew me. But they didn't know it was me writing. Wow! I, I gained the confidence to be able to really um, start to share these things because when I started to share it to the people that were close to me, and I was like, "Yo, that's me writing." They was like, "Nah, that ain't you." Like, you, ain't <laughs> a, you know, like <laughs> that can't like, be you, you. right? Like, you don't use your words that way, or you're not like,
1: wow. Thanks, <laughs> right, guys.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So I had to really. Um, that's what made me really uh, start to put my face and my my name towards it but then uh, I I saw the I saw the power that it had as far as the amount of people that are out here suffering. Mm-hmm. And um that empowered me. And like I said just seeing I me knowing when I went to therapy the first time and um uh, Dr. Jasper, Kendall Jasper, his ability to be genuine with me but then also mix in that clinical knowledge that was something that I was like that's something I want to do
1: mm. that's so important
0: right because I I have that lived experience and I know what it's like to be on that other side of the I say couch because I, I know I'm not a big we can get into that later but I, <laughs> on the, I know what it's like to be on the other side of the couch yeah or sitting on that couch and having someone tell me, so tell me about your day. Or, you know, what's been going on? Uh, you know, and someone probing into your life, and it seems very invasive, but it's much needed so you can get the help that you need. So I've been on that side. So, But I also wanted to know, you know, uh, all right, so when I ask somebody what's been going on with them, how, do that, how does that co- correlate clinically? And then how do I shape that to fit our population? Because honestly, when I went when I, in my master's program, I was reading some stuff in books and I was like, yo, this ain't gonna work in my hood.
1: Right. <laughs> it's so true. It's true. <laughs> well, a lot of the population for these research studies you'll find are, are uh, European or right. you know white european population and it's it's helpful it's helpful to have some information but what you'll find is that a lot of these studies on therapy and mental health are a lot of them are not uh inclusive of uh black and brown communities as their population for these studies and that's something that our oh, yeah. field has to improve on and hopefully we'll with our with yeah. our schooling we can add to and contribute to you know but it's true oh yeah of
2: course
0: And I mean, and there are there are layers to that as well. It's it's not just because you know we can say, oh, white people only want to just make it for them, but then also we got to understand that we in black and brown communities don't talk about mental health anyway so if someone tries to come do a research study on you you'll be looking at people with the side i'm like no what kind of tests what kind of tests are you right? trying
1: to do on right. me you know <laughs> right. yeah we, you're we gonna, know, gonna, gonna know, keep my dna my fingerprints right. i don't want to be right. in the system i mean you can right. see it i could already play it out
0: <laughs> but then we also we know things about like the tuskegee experiments yeah and we're we're used we were used as guinea pigs to you know to benefit The white population there's a lot of
1: skepticism (laughs) there and and a lot of stigmatization and i try to explain this like most of the stigmatizing is within our own our own community by Mm -hmm. our own community like Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily you know other people saying like oh you can't get therapy or whatever but it's us it's within our own community of mistrust and skepticism and there are some reasons for that but also just the cultural you know mentality
0: Right. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So we, I know this, the work that we're doing, it, it's a, it's an uphill battle, but it's, it's necessary. <laughs>
1: it's moving though. Like, it is. it, it is. really is. Speaking of, cause I just I saw a clip of you and Trevor Noah,
2: <laughs> cause he just
1: <laughs> released that video and about, yeah. um, there are only, only 4% of psychologists are black. It's yep. a very small percentage.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so, I mean, I'm glad that we're in there. But right. um, for someone like you, like your story, who's like, the only way that I'm going to break through is basically talking to someone probably who kind of speaks my language or mm-hmm. that I see myself, I can see myself in. Um, that's that's huge, you know, to someone's healing. and. You tweeted this a while ago. I'm going back in the archives now.
2: Okay. I'm going in the archives. I I remember
1: this tweet because I shared it on my stories. Uh, You tweeted a while ago. You said, I love it when I walk in and a nurse says, I wasn't expecting you to be the therapist. Yep, I'm a black man wearing a t-shirt, jeans, and sneakers with a license to do this. How may I help you? I was like, that's amazing. Does this happen often? What? Do you, you I know maybe it's rhetorical, but I would love to hear more of your experience now on the other side as a therapist walking in with your T-shirt, jeans and sneakers or which I, I don't know if you wear that all the time. But um, yeah, what has that experience been like? And do you think the field is evolving in diversification?
0: Oh, man, it's it's just interesting to see. Like you should have saw the look on the nurse's face. Um, it was just priceless. But I definitely understand that uh, some things are changing. Uh, but then also for me, it's the point of not just uh, putting on a, uh, a show as far as the, I'm. A, I'm a, it's not me just wanting to be rebellious. Let me, let me put it that way. It's, right. uh, as far as, you know, just the status quo. It's not just that. It's about me being comfortable and me being genuine to myself, and that's going to allow me to relate better to whoever I'm working with. Yeah. And so that's that's the thing that I like to portray. Like If, if you like to wear suits or you like to wear dresses and, and that's your style, do that. But that's not me all the time. I, I don't feel comfortable sitting in a suit all day and, and talking to someone. So I want to... I want to portray that more, more so than the fact that, oh, he he comes in with jeans and a T-shirt on so he can be relatable. No, I'm more comfortable, and that's going to allow me to be more relatable. Um, but then, you know, these types of things are not taught when we're in school. So, so you're in school right now. Yeah. Like, you know, they always try to preach a professional dress and this. but
1: Or like it's not said, but everybody right. just dresses that way. So Right, you right, know. right.
0: But if I'm going into the hood, because I do a lot of community-based therapy, as I was well. gonna
1: ask what your population was. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if I'm going into the hood with a suit on and I'm walking up and knocking on somebody's door, and you know you're going into the projects, and you know everybody, everybody around Jehovah's the, pro- the, the house that you're gonna to- right, <laughs> so they're, they're gonna be looking at oh, it's social services coming to take her kids. Okay. Or it, yeah. Or you know, like who is this coming? Like, no, I don't want to. Why? Why would I draw that attention to myself? and to that household it's
1: cultural awareness is what right. it is yeah
0: so um but so i i do see you know we hear a lot of times now that oh um clinicians have to be more um cult- they must be culturally aware and culturally competent but no we have to have a humility when it comes down to being uh culturally uh we have to have cultural humility when it comes down to our practices as well so it's not just uh, forcing our our culture onto whatever population we're working with. It's us going into these homes or us working with this client. Tell me about your life. Right. And tell me the aspects of your life that may have caused these stressors and what are your protective factors within that. And let's work within that. I always tell my clients, um, you're, the, you're the expert in your own life. Yep. I'm, I guess I'm an, expert. I'm an expert as far as clinically, but no, you're the expert in your own life and I'm here to help you be able to navigate your own life.
1: Yeah. And I'll say in all reality, I know a number of, you know, young men in my community and back at home. And, you know, even some of my brothers where they would need to see someone like you uh, to feel comfortable, to talk. Right. Just being honest, because when we were kids, we were actually court ordered to go to therapy as Uh children because my parents went through a divorce and this this, isn't that they were worried about how it was affecting us. And it got mm-hmm. involved with the courts. So they made us go. I was there like, oh, my gosh, yes, I have someone to talk to. <laughs> like, I couldn't stop talking. And I was like, I like this therapy thing, like, you know, as a girl. So I personally had a positive experience. Um, but my brother, he wouldn't open up in the room. Like, he was in there. He had, he'd had he have He'd have his pack of, um, like, fruit snacks and be popping them in the air and catching them in his mouth <laughs> in the room while we're talking and wouldn't say much. Yup it's okay, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it just didn't connect for him. Right, uh, right. but see, I think, I think what you're doing is so important because, um, I just know a lot of people that, that, that could use that.
0: And like you said, it's, is seeing someone that looks like you, but then also when I'm doing therapy, especially with uh, a male, um, whether there be a young male. So my, my youngest client is like six and the oldest is like 72. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what things do you like? And, and, you know, a lot of times, especially with males, we, we like to be hands on and active.
2: Yes. That's and, so true. and so,
0: right. So I'm like, I'm taking my, my client. We're going to the gym. We're going to work out while we're doing therapy or we're going to shoot ball or we're going to the park. We're going to walk around, you know, the greenway or any of those things. We're going to be active. So I'm not just sitting in my chair and you're sitting on the couch and I'm asking you, oh, so tell me about your feelings. I'm not going to get anything from you. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not because that's tough. Or even I use the video games, even when I when I especially with my my younger clients, oh they love that because we can be playing 2K, but I'm still asking them all the things that I need to ask them, and they're they're just talking, they they, they got word from it. then right. <laughs> while they're playing the video game, Absolutely. but I I'm still doing what I need to do, and there, I can actually be able to provide the help that I need because if if it's an hour long session, we play the video game for 20 minutes. And then they start telling me some things. All right. Now it's time for the game to be over with. So now let, let's talk about this stuff that we just talked that you just brought up. You brought it up. I didn't bring it up, but you brought it up. Yeah. So let's, let's explore this a little bit more.
1: That's amazing. And those are such protective factors. Things like you're saying, like, I just remember, like, my brothers going to the gym together with friends and working mm-hmm. out and stuff and then things come out. You know, Mm -hmm. in the natural environment that become a part of a discussion. And even if it's Mm. not with a therapist per se, um, it it definitely provides this protective factor for their mental health because they're letting it out in this natural outlet. And so I love that you take natural, uh, the natural environment and resources that you know that they love and are of interest and are working from there. And it's just Mm -hmm. like meeting them where they are. And exactly. that's such a beautiful thing, man. I love this. I love this so much. Okay. I need to move to where you are. Okay. And <laughs> get in on this. That's what needs to happen <laughs> <Come
0: on>. next. <laughs> right, what we need to do is or, just take this. We're going to have a West Coast. Entity bring it to LA. To, yeah. Let's do it.
1: <laughs> I, I, I got, I just spoke in South Central and South South Central LA. And yeah. we had this whole conversation. Um, We're going to do it. Okay. We're going to talk. We're going to talk some more. (laughs) Um. (laughs) It's it's,
0: it's needed. It's it's so needed. Um, because even now, uh, so even through eustress, I introduced yoga to, to the men. So I do a, a, a male's intro to yoga class. So it's only males. The only, the only woman that's in the class is the teacher. She's, she sits on my board, Danielle. And um, so she's the instructor, but we go through just different yoga poses to introduce these men to things that they can incorporate into their daily lifestyle. And men, a lot of times we won't try yoga because we're intimidated by the women that can get into all of these different poses and stuff. So I'm that's why I am intimidated by those to- women. <laughs> Shoot, <laughs> it, it took me a tough. while it, to it, touch definitely- my toes. i still struggle with that because my hamstrings are so tight (laughs) um (laughs) but we you know i want to and that goes back into how things are considered male and female or woman and uh men uh activities and all that no these are things that can help everyone out yeah so that's why i do the men's yoga class and introducing those things so it's introducing them to new things, but then also teaching them things. But then also, it it falls into their comfort level because then they start to realize that oh, yoga is an activity, activity where yeah. I'm really go f- worked out once I'm <laughs> once I'm done.
1: Right, right. Oh man, it's it's stretching and uh, recentering your thoughts. And you know, this being a faith based uh, podcast, I know that there are different uh, views about it. Um, Mm -hmm. but essentially like it's stretching your body, it's recentering, it's what Mm -hmm. it's what you choose to affirm your mind on.
0: It's grounding. You're grounding. It's grounding,
1: yeah, yeah. So gosh, I love all the integrations that you have going on, engaging the whole the whole person, you know.
0: Right. You have to.
1: So tell us about your book, congratulations.
0: What aren't you
1: doing? all you need all you need now is a music video like <laughs> then you can die peacefully knowing you've done everything
0: oh, <laughs> right right um, injured so, reserve yeah 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 so um i wrote it as it, it tells my story more into more detail but i also challenged the reader to be able to address their own issues so and it's called injured reserve a black man's playbook to manage being sidelined by mental illness and i wrote it as a quote-unquote playbook because of course i have an athletic background um but like i said in at, at the end of each chapter i challenge you as a reader so to think about what are your protective factors um what things stress you out uh what who if at three o'clock in the morning you're having a crisis who can you call so these things that you need to go ahead and have in place so that if something happens, you can actually go ahead and tap into those resources instead of waiting to the last minute. Because life can come at you real fast.
2: Yeah.
0: And a lot of times we think about we think about uh, mental health diagnoses or mental health crises as something that we may be immune to. But we all deal with stress every single day. Yeah. So I want to
1: add up. It compiles. Yeah.
0: It really can and so that's how I I wrote the book I wrote the book as far as like based off my own story up until my last suicide attempt and um, like I said I wanted to people to use it as a guide for them for them to be able to address their issues whether they're diagnosed with something or whether they're not or maybe they're living with someone who may be dealing with some type of issues so they can get an insight on what may be going through that person's mind and it, it really comes from a lot of my own journal writing as well uh, so these are things that were actually going through my head at that particular time that I was dealing with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Journaling is huge. It just puts yes. a, it puts um it puts words to your reality.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And it's so, it's so powerful. And so I love that your journey is integrated through this and just your real lived experience. And I had one last question Um, Mm -hmm. because I definitely want to ask you this while you're here. A lot of people have a hard time separating their diagnosis from their worth, their self image, you know, their ability in life, as far as like their projection in life. Mm -hmm. What has helped you overcome this? And like, what advice would you give to others who are struggling with the fact that they've just been given a diagnosis or they're living with the diagnosis and they feel like it has claim to their life and
0: their future? Mm, that's a great question. Great, yeah. great question. This is something that I actually touched on in my TEDx talk.
1: Yes. Oh, um, I can't believe I didn't even bring that up. You're, <laughs> you had a whole TED talk. It was amazing. And I'm going to link you. that in the show notes. You guys want to, y'all want to watch that. Be blessed Thank by
0: it. Uh, so it was one thing that, it's, it's about labels and understanding that, uh, labels are, should be used to help us, for one, describe things that we may be going through, but then also understand parts of ourselves. So I had to separate myself from the label of being bipolar um, or living with bipolar disorder. And under, that made me understand what bipolar disorder was. So that made me research that, but then also apply it to my own life but then also understand all of the other labels that I'm deal- that I, that are placed on me whether it is is personally that I place on myself or that society places on me and understanding that that bipolar label is just one label compared to so many others right because I was an athlete I was a scholar I'm I'm black I'm a man uh I'm a father um you know, I'm a son, I'm I'm a family person. So all of these other things still continue to be me. It's just that this one particular label, I got to really study it to understand how do I manage it so that I can continue to be me. Yeah. And once I got to that point and understanding that, you know, bipolar, bipolar is a label and it's something that I'm gonna deal, I'm gonna live with for the rest of my life. So that's another thing that I had to, you know, understanding process it's, it's, I, it's never going to go away there's no quote-unquote cure for it right. I can only it's just manage management
2: my, yeah right
0: it's about managing and then understanding that some of my management techniques that happened that uh that i use right now in 2019 may not carry over in 2020 and be effective so it's always a constant me recalibrating certain things and understanding what do i need to do to be my best self so, and, but that's also me accepting that label. And once I accept that label, no one can use it against me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's the worst you could do? Call me bipolar? I'm like, okay. I <laughs> am. And what? Right. And what? Right. And what?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know that that's been a big struggle. And how can listeners connect with you and the work that you're doing? What's the best way to follow everything?
0: Oh, man. Um. Whew everything i know you're I, okay. everywhere <laughs> where aren't you uh, um instagram twitter facebook you know if you can spell my name you can find me even <laughs> on my website like, look we laugh because you know we talked about this earlier yeah <laughs> well, yeah off, off air uh but if you can spell my name you can find me uh because i'm i'm pretty sure i'm the only one out there right now unless someone decided to name their kid rashawn after they did you know <laughs> yeah uh, yeah that so but if you can r-w-e-n s-h-a-u-n if you can spell it you can find me um, on, on social media um, also even on my website I keep that up to date as well as far as just the different things that I have going on uh, 2020 is going to be a huge year I'm going to make sure that I make it out to LA so me and Brittany can connect and, and do yes. some things as well um, and then I'm going to bring her out here to the east coast so she can do some things out here in the face community as well because it's, done. Cause it's- because it's needed, and and then we go, and then we're gonna take it global. So you know. Wow, <laughs> so that's that's, we thing. have
1: a lot of plans.
0: Oh, we have a lot of plans, a whole lot of plans. <laughs> I'm gonna
1: have to uh, drop out of school.
0: Hey, look, hey, but no, it's, and the beauty of that. So my <laughs> program is the international psychology program. So oh, I'm
2: that's nice.
0: Yeah, so Smart. I'll be in I'll be in Ghana in 2020 um, doing my dissertation research. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so and then I actually have to go to Kuwait in uh, March as well and do some i'll be doing an internship out there for a couple of weeks Amazing. so um but yeah but social media definitely uh email as well if you need some you know assistance when it comes down to tapping into resources or uh i do mental health coaching and stuff for clients all over the world um Mm. as well yeah so are there uh,
1: are there really 10 of you you said you're an only child, but I don't believe it. You must have, hey, like, look. other twin, <laughs> twins in other parts doing doing some of this, passing I off as you.
0: A, <laughs> I, fish, I wish, I wish, I would so it's just me. It's no, good, I feel you.
1: No, I know that feeling. I know that feeling. It's just you feel like you could do it forever.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I feel right. you. I, I definitely enjoy it. Um, and then, like, but, yeah, so connecting me with that over that and, um, Again, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Like you're you're definitely making waves especially in the faith-based community and connecting those dots when it comes down to mental health cuz it's Thank needed.
1: You. Yeah, I really decided really over the past few months that I want to make it an integration of faith, culture, and mental health, uh, mm-hmm. because of all the reasons that we've talked about and my own background, you know, coming from, you know, I'm from Inglewood. So mm-hmm. I grew up in the, and, um, I have, a, I have another, I have a different dynamic of stories, but, uh, but so important. And I'm going to have all of, it. thank you. Thank you for saying that as well. Uh, I have, I'll have all of your links, Oliver Sean's links okay. in the show notes. Um, so if you have a hard time spelling his name, which <laughs> learn it anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, it'll all be there. So thank you so much, so much for this needed okay, conversation. We'll have to have another one at some point and revisit some things. And yeah, we're we're doing it. We're gonna go global. We're gonna okay, we're gonna do some yeah. stuff. <laughs> have a great rest of your day all right you too all right thanks Rashawn.